0: Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the Venture Fizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. We are at episode 113 and today's guest is Nitesh Banta, co-founder and CEO at B12. Nitesh is deeply rooted in the tech industry as both a serial entrepreneur and investor. We actually go way back as I remember connecting with him while he was a VC at General Catalyst. He was co-founding a new, first of its kind student-led VC firm called Rough Draft Ventures. Fast forward, this initiative that is still powered by General Catalyst has gone on to make a massive massive impact with over 150 investments in early stage startups. Today, Nitesh is back as an operator with his next startup called B12. It is a venture-backed company that has a human-assisted AI platform called Orchestra. The current use case of their technology is focused on building websites that are a fraction of the price of hiring an agency and a lot less work than a DIY site. In addition to building out B12, he is still very active in the startup community as a mentor and an angel investor. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics like Nitesh's passion for outer space how he became a venture capitalist, and what's the hardest part of being a VC, his experience at General Catalyst, and the story behind the launch of Rough Draft Ventures, B12 and all the details behind its platform, what he looks for when making an angel investment, and advice for others looking to be angel investors, common mistakes entrepreneurs make when trying to raise capital, plus a lot more. Okay, quick side note. Are you hiring? If the answer is yes, then you should definitely consider adding a biz page on VentureFizz. It is our employment branding and hiring solution that helps you engage with our very targeted audience of professionals in the tech scene. It is an incredibly cost-effective solution used by all stages of companies from early startups to larger publicly traded companies. If you are interested in learning more, please send an email to info at VentureFizz.com. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Nitesh. Nitesh, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Nitesh. I was excited to talk to you for our podcast because we have a, a history. We've known each other for quite some time back when you were an investor at General Catalyst. But there's things that I don't always know about people. And I get, when I get to do this podcast, I get to go deep into a person's background and really explore their whole professional history and then learn some personal elements too. One of which was uh, your interest in space. Now, I want to talk to you about this because I, I just have my own personal interest in this world, and um, it just seems like it's gotten such a great reboot with SpaceX and Blue Origin, and it just seems like space is relevant again for, for a long stretch of time. It just was kind of dormant. Um, so anyways, what's your interest there, and kind of what's, what's the latest and greatest there?
1: Yeah. Um, well, thanks for having me. It's been great getting to know you over the years. And um, yeah, space is just something I fell in love with in college. So I took a class um, called Cosmic Connections taught by Professor David Charbonneau. I'd say like the biggest takeaway was he teaches you kind of something, you know, folks in the industry called like the cosmic perspective. And so, you know, it's so easy day to day to just get caught up in like, you know, your work or everything else. And Cosmic Connections really, like, taught you around the scale uh, of the universe and the and, uh, and the solar system and uh, the galaxies around us. And it's just, like, really humbling to see. So a lot of it was kind of more intellectual when I started. Um, I think there are a lot of parallels to startups. You know, as a startup, it's so easy to get caught up in what you're doing. But there are these bigger systems or sets of things that, that happen. And it was one of those classes when I took it. I would just do all the reading just because I was so interested. I remember taking the final. I didn't even have to study. I just, like, had a sense of what was on the... <laughs> well, it was on the syllabus because I was just so interested in every single aspect of it. And it's something that's persisted since then. Um, it hasn't intersected too much in my investing or my entrepreneurial activities, uh, even though they're amazing companies like Tesla, SpaceX, or some great companies in Cambridge as well. Uh, but I, I've just always blown away by like what's happening in the universe. And like, you know, often I'll be listening to podcasts or learning more wherever I can. It's just an orthogonal side of interest I have outside of the world of tech and entrepreneurship, even though it's very technical in many ways as well.
0: Now is is Virgin the one that's going to do uh civilian space travel first and regardless of who does it are you going to you know eventually look to be one of those passengers
1: Yeah I mean I would love to go into outer space I feel like just the same way like learning about the universe changes your perspective I feel like being able to go out there and like see the world uh as a small blue dot would be super inspiring Um so I would definitely love to do it someday and I uh, I'm really confident it'll happen in our lifetime. if you talk to students at MIT or other folks, like people are doing really interesting work in this area. Uh, So I feel like the next couple of decades is going to be like a really um, uh, thriving time for like space entrepreneurship and space technology.
0: Wow, that'll be so cool. I can't wait. Well, let's rewind the clock. So uh, going back, like where did you grow up? What were you like as a kid?
1: Yes, I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut. Um, uh, So pretty close to New York City, where I'm based now. Uh, I was pretty quiet as a kid, loved math. Uh, I fell in love with computers like early on. I remember when I was, um, you know, four or five years old, my dad got a computer from uh, like a doctor friend of ours, something he's going to throw away. It was like a Tandy. We had no idea what it was. I plugged it in, uh, had this DOS interface. Uh, I didn't have a manual or anything. Just started to click around and found my way around like this universe of things that existed inside the computer. And it was just amazing. Like I I really like was blown away by how much you could do. Um, This is pre-internet, pre-everything. Um, and had a similar experience. Like the first time uh, we got the internet and I remember we had a laptop at that point, we got a, uh, a CD-ROM for AOL. We had 24 hours free, uh, and, uh, we signed up for the internet and we used all 24 hours in the first day. It was just like one of these mind blowing things. Um, so I always loved, uh, technology when I was younger. Um, you know, as I got a little bit older, like, um, I continued to follow the things I was really passionate about. So I always had this like knack for starting organizations or leading school clubs. Um, I always did well in school, but it wasn't like my core focus or something that I, I would do enough to like do well, but really would spend most of my time pursuing interests that I really loved. Um, and, um, you know, over the course of my childhood, a great childhood and was able to, uh, live in the same house, the same town my entire life and, uh, and make like the, the world's best friends, uh, growing up.
0: Now you attended Harvard. why did you decide to study social studies?
1: Yeah, so I was, um, I was one of the first people from my high school in known history to go to Harvard. So it's kind of just this mind blowing experience to even be able to go there. Um, I didn't know about social studies or any of the other majors there, but it was, um, I remember getting that big envelope. This is this before they let you know that you'd get online over email or just around the time. And I got this big envelope. I'd gone into a couple of other good schools at that point, but like never really fathomed that I'd be able to go to Harvard. Um, and once I went there, I, I went there primarily because I was interested in education. I was interested in technology, but didn't even know you could have a career path as an entrepreneur or in startups. I didn't know anything about this whole world. Um, And social studies was a major. There was interdisciplinary major, so you could set up your your own course of study. Uh, So I was able to pursue a whole bunch of different areas, including coursework and education, which is what I got really interested in. Um, And it's also, like, you learn about the social sciences, which is, again, one of these really nice things that intersects with technology in a great way. Understanding how people work uh, is a really core part to understanding how technology could work uh and so there's been a lot of benefits so at the time i was just trying to find a set of majors or a field of studies that i didn't uh really know how to pursue otherwise in the liberal arts school
0: and then what'd you do after college
1: yeah so uh when i was in college i i thought i was going to come out and be a teacher or go into school administration but i had this pretty transformational experience my junior year where i was uh, able to be part of the first business intern class at google uh, i moved from cambridge to mountain view california uh, again, didn't know a ton about tech or entrepreneurship. Um, was interested always, like had a knack for these types of things, but like it, it just wasn't a common for area of pursuit. This was like post dot com boom, so you know there it wasn't something that people were thinking about, but there's still just a world of potential. Uh, and at Google, I just got exposed to it, like really for the first time. I caught the Valley ethos, saw people who were using technology to change the world, uh, and I loved it. And so when I was in college, I was. as one of these kids who's always starting different projects, trying, you know, things I thought were companies, but were really just projects. uh, And was really looking for ways to explore that. Um, I ended up going into strategy consulting there was like a very track system going into, uh, going out of school, you had to find a job, there are all these career uh, recruiting services out there and I ended up getting a job at a firm called the Parthenon Group, which had an interest in education. Um, uh, So I did that for about a year um, right out of school.
0: But then from there, you did some interesting things that were more of the path that you explored for that Google internship entrepreneurship. So what was after strategy consulting?
1: Yeah. And and even while I was strategy consulting, I was always working on like projects on the side. I I kind of did not have any focus, always was working on something. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, um, you know, for me, it became really evident, like the types of opportunities entrepreneurship gives you. I would do a strategy consulting case in the world of education where I might, end up, uh, you know, talking to an expert and like, I'd be in a room full of like five people and my boss could maybe send a note to their boss, who would maybe send a note to their boss who could ask a question to this expert. And at the same time, I was working after hours on this startup I was working on called Summer Workation, where I was able to talk with the same people and they were just super excited by the types of things that were happening in technology. So I quickly kind of realized I wanted to go back to the entrepreneurial world and on a whim, applied to this program called Singularity University. Uh, it was just starting out. It was this um, uh, program, the 10 week program focused on uh, exploring emerging technologies and thinking about ways as emerging technologies could create companies that would impact a billion people over 10 years. So I planned on a whim. I got a full scholarship, quit my job and um, uh, went to the Valley to uh, start at Singularity University.
0: So summer workation, like what, what was that all about?
1: So when I was at Google, I had an opportunity to like just meet other interns. I noticed this very interesting pattern where interns who uh, were going through the Teach for America program would come and work at Google over the summer. Mm -hmm. So they would be teaching over the school year over the summer. They'd work at Google and they'd bring those lessons back to their classroom. It's also great supplemental employment for the teachers. I remember going back to my own uh, high school and asking my teachers, hey, what do you do over the summer? I was pretty shocked. Some of them said, you know, it's hard to find things to do. Some of them were just doing odd jobs here and there. Um, and it felt like there's this really amazing labor pool um, that could contribute a ton over the summer, but there wasn't really a place for them to find opportunities. So I hacked together like an MVP where I put together job opportunities for teachers and a little bit of a job board and search functionality um, and got tens of thousands of teachers to sign up uh, just cause it was so niche. And it's like my first time kind of building a product end to end having people use it learning from that usage uh uh and uh you know it's still the site still exists today in some sort of like broken outdated form uh but i, I really cre- like a lot of the lessons i learned just from doing summer workation like are still applicable even you know scaling a venture-backed business uh and uh, i'm so thankful for having had that experience
0: so as Part of Singularity University, uh, you also you know worked as part of a, the founding team for a company that is, you know they raised three hundred million last August, a total of four hundred forty-three million. That being Getaround, a car sharing uh, startup. So so how did you get involved with that, and you know obviously it's you know scaled you know since since then, but uh, the early days, what was it like?
1: Yeah, Getaround was an amazing experience. It was like the first time I worked on a project that reached venture scale. So. At Singularity University, we were in the heart of the valley. We were tasked with creating this, um, you know, project that could impact a billion people. we were in this program, we were meeting with the founders of Google, Peter Thiel, all these notable folks in the valley. And there was a core of us who were just really excited. Like, the reason we were there was to learn about technology, but the real reason we were there was to start a company. As all of us kind of early on, like, in the second or third week said, okay, we're going to, like, stop going to class, uh, and we're going to make, like, starting a company our class. And that group of folks are the ones who started get around. And we were really inspired by like what was happening in the world of transportation. This just pre Uber, pre Lyft, and also inspired by things like uh, Airbnb, where, people were, where the sharing economy is starting to emerge. So uh, kind of the most valuable asset a lot of folks have is their home and they were starting to share it online. And we felt like, what's another really valuable asset you have? It's your car. There are cars that sit idle day by day um, and we felt this like when, even when we're not, you know, a lot of us wanted access to a car but it was hard to get so we felt like a very similar type of economy would emerge for sharing vehicles uh and so we started the program out of there you know continued to advise them i actually got a chance to invest in get around when i was at uh general catalyst uh but it's a really amazing story of seeing a company we started in 2009 it's been over a decade we had all these bets around what was going to happen in the world of transportation autonomous cars um, you know, a change in ownership mentality. And a lot of those things have come true. It's just taken a little bit longer than we even would have thought. Uh, but it seems like that co- it's a company that, uh, you know, in the last year or two, has just seen so much increased momentum as these things start to come to fruition that we started to think about over a decade ago.
0: Now, from there, you went into the world of venture capital as uh, being an investor yourself. So, so how did you uh, land in that industry of, you know, make, being on the investment side and land a position at General Catalyst?
1: Yeah, so I um uh, I had to move back to the East Coast for a bunch of personal reasons, and um you know I was working on several companies, and just to be frank, getting a little bit burnt out. Like I have this notion, anytime you start a company, you give up part of your soul. And being a young founder who like hadn't really seen too much before, it get around, we got our we got like a venture offer. So you know, it was start is a start of like a bigger company. Um. But um, I was just working too many things and I felt like there was an opportunity for me to learn and reset a little bit. So I got a call from a headhunter one day saying, uh, you know, would you be interested in a role in venture? Uh, and this was back in 2009, 2010. So it wasn't a very popular industry. It was very rare for young people to be in venture. Um, the whole ecosystem was very different. Uh, but you know, I asked them a little bit more about it and they were just looking for a young person who was passionate about technology and startups. Um, And um, wanted me to interview a venture firm and um, I ended up interviewing there and I met some of the other young people they had at the firm and they were just like me, they love tech, they love startups, they want to be part of the ecosystem Um, and um, I figured that there was an opportunity for me to like maybe have fun for a year or two doing it so I interviewed a few firms and ended up joining General Catalyst in their Cambridge office, Uh, I really hit it off with the team there. Um, and I, I, would have, I would never would have thought I'd do it for more than a year or two, just cause I kind of had this bug to, um, start a company, but, um, yeah, I'd say starting a company is the best job in the world, being a VC is probably a close second. Uh, there's so many amazing things about it and the firm at GC was really amazing to work at and grow at. Um, so I really enjoyed my time there.
0: Yeah. Cause it's very often that someone joins as an associate or senior associate. It's almost like a two year commitment and then you move on to. You know, maybe you do work up the ranks to a partner, but oftentimes you move on to a portfolio company or you start your own company.
1: Yeah. And I was lucky. I mean, I, I ended up spending uh, over five years at GC, got along with the team incredibly well there. I started investing in 2010. So whether you're a good investor or bad investor, if you started investing in 2010, you probably did okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, during my time with GC specifically, the firm just grew so much. We went from being a single office in Cambridge to being this national venture capital firm with offices in Alto, San Francisco, and New York. Uh, So there's just a ton of growth opportunity uh, at the firm and you know, I was lucky to make some great investments. I was there be part of some really good initiatives, but um, ultimately got the bug to to start something again.
0: Now, you know, you were already starting companies and then you became a venture capitalist. Now for other people that maybe are interested in becoming a VC, like what was the hardest part of the job that you didn't know going into it?
1: Yeah. I, I didn't really know what job I was signing up for, to be totally honest when I was being a VC, but I would say, you know, Since then, I've learned quite a bit about it and still coach a lot of young people in venture. Um, And I'd say it splits up into two phases. Like the first phase when you're doing VC is all around forming deal judgment and like deal opportunities. And um, I kind of joined GC in a very unique time. The firm was changing so much and just even the roles for young people were changing so much. Prior to my joining, they had a traditional sourcing program, kind of like what Bessemer has or Insight has where you would just cold dial founders um, like every single day Uh, and it moved to like a more liberal program but I was able to get onboarded in that kind of more rigorous sourcing mechanism by someone named Brad Hoover um, who was a principal at the time now the CEO of Grammarly and I give him a ton of credit I mean in venture it's often hard to get a mentor someone to really show you the ropes the day I joined Brad told me he was leaving GC but he said his last job was to train me and he did an amazing job spending the summer training me, making sure I like talked to companies every single day was fearless in my ability to reach out. And then my, the first phase of uh, venture, I'd say the hardest thing for me was like getting deal judgment. And, you know, I, I would get to a point, even when I left, I would talk about a thousand companies every single year. So I always had this idea that I should be meeting entrepreneurs, learning what's out there in the market. And I think after you meet your first thousand, you start to get like see some pattern recognition and have some deal judgment what's happening. So I would just say getting there as fast as possible helps. I would say as you start to mature a little bit more as an investor, um, you know, um, during my latter time at GC, I was able to lead some of my own investments and, uh, you know, take on board roles and everything else. And I would say, understanding the skill set to coach an entrepreneur is like a fine art. Uh, and it's totally orthogonal in some ways to being really good at sourcing deals and evaluating deals. Uh, and your instincts when you're young are often totally wrong and how you're supposed to coach entrepreneurs. You want to go to meetings, you just shoot out advice, you say things that are super obvious, uh, you know, you're a little bit of a pain to to like the entrepreneur you're working with. And it's part of like the growing curve. And I, I know folks did really well. That for me was like one of the hardest parts as I start to scale up a little bit more. I mean, I had been part of startups, but I never really run like 100% plus companies. And to authentically give advice to founders at that stage is something that you just need a lot of, you need a kind of an equal set of pattern recognition and you have to kind of trial and error with your first set of founders. Some people do it by getting operational experience. I'd say I'm probably a significantly better coach of founders I work with today than I was uh, four years ago before I started B12. Some people learn it through the venture. If you you do it enough, there are plenty of people who've gone the straight venture path who end up being big coaches Um, and you end up just sitting in lots of board meetings. I mean, over my years at GCS in hundreds, maybe you a thousand plus board meetings and uh, probably hundreds. And I just was able to see so many amazing board members. Um, So that part of it is something that you can really intuit and that experience can be a really painful second learning curve for people at venture.
0: And what were some of the investments or companies that you were involved in while you were at General Catalyst?
1: Yeah, so uh, I had an opportunity to be involved in like over a dozen companies during my time there um i invested in companies like mark 43 which is a police software business as one of my first investments uh a company called brainly which is a a peer-to-peer q a network uh, for homework help they have over 100 million students around the world who sign up for it i also supported on investments like big commerce handy loku uh, which is where i met my co-founder and i also started an initiative while i was at gc called rough rough ventures where we invested in dozens of companies as well
0: and I did want to concentrate on Rough Draft Ventures, uh, like Venture Fizz was an early supporter of that initiative yeah. in the early days. And I think that's how we got to know each other. And that was such a meaningful, meaningful effort that, w- w- like what was the talk amongst you know, the firm to say, hey, let's start to source deals with college students and write them like their first check to help get their company started?
1: Yeah, it was really an amazing thing and thank you for the early support. I remember you guys covered us and like supported us a ton when we were just getting started um it was kind of a crazy experience so rough draft was what i would have loved to have when i was a college student the problem is there was no need for rough draft when i was a college student because there were like four of us interested in tech entrepreneurship so you you can meet every single young person interested in tech entrepreneurship over a weekend uh but one of the things i noticed when i was at gc is um you know i still pretty closely connected with the academic community i'd meet these amazing amazing young founders i'm sure you know having been in boston you you've met some of these folks yourself And there's just no mechanism for us to work with them. You know, so we would kind of become the first people to tell them no. Whether or not we thought they were amazing, you know, they weren't ready to raise a $10 million Series A. They weren't even asking for it, but we became like their first no. And I would just track these founders over years and see them build these very notable businesses. Um, And I remember I was sitting with Larry Bond, who's one of my mentors at GC, and just telling him about this. And I was like, wouldn't it be amazing if we could be their first Yes. Like when they're on campus and they're just learning about entrepreneurship, and we be the, be the first person to tell them pursue this. Like actually think about uh, a, a path in entrepreneurship, and we're going to support you in doing so. And I remember I talked to him on a Friday during one of our one-on-ones. He's like, "Okay, um, propose pr- uh, propose a solution for this Monday at the partnership. I'm going to give you guys a slot." And so um, I left our one-on-one as like, "Okay, got to think of something." I was pretty involved in the student community, and um, uh, you know, I uh, I called up Peter Boyce who um, Uh, I was heavily recruiting to be an intern for me at GC and Bilal Zuberi who was at GC at the time as well and said, Hey, you know, there's this awesome opportunity Monday, we had to pitch something to the partnership on how we can engage with students and like any good entrepreneurs, we came up with two ideas (laughs) and we pitched them on two separate ideas. The one we were most excited about being uh, a student uh, run mentor fund. Uh, So this notion of like really supporting students with $25,000 checks Uh, We felt like we were uniquely positioned. We were literally in Harvard Square. We did a lot with the community, the student community to start with. Um, And, uh, you know, to GC's credit, they were like, go run with it. You know, like there was, I'd been there long enough, you know, had had enough successes. I think um, they just said, you know, if it's something you're really passionate about, like go prove it out. And then, you know, to Peter's credit, Bilal's credit, like they also had just so many deep roots inside the ecosystem. Peter especially was like kind of this phenom in the Boston tech Mm -hmm. community. Um, So kind of we were able to pull it together, um, launch with support from folks like yourself and um, a first part of student uh, uh, fellows who were uh, making investments with us. Um, And we were lucky that first semester, I think we made 15 investments and like those investments include companies like Mark 43, which has become this really amazing company. Um, And I think we very early on were able to prove out this thesis that there was this amazing talent you could engage with. We said like a slightly lower bar to like start working with them, um, you know, instead of giving them a million dollars, them a couple, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars. And um, you know, now uh, I've seen them like Dorm Room Fund, all these initiatives really scale up, and it's pretty incredible. And not only because you're supporting founders, but I think one of the kind of little-known side effects of rough draft and Dorm Room Fund is that a lot of folks who are like the student investment partners end up pursuing careers in venture. And one of the things that we took a lot of care into with Rough Draft is we wanted a very diverse student partnership. Um, It was possible to recruit some amazing folks. And as a result, we've seen like lots of folks with more unique backgrounds make their world into venture. Uh, And a lot of the things that we expose student investment members to and entrepreneurs to who are pitching Rough Draft are very emblematic of what it's like to pitch in the real world. So I'm hoping it was a good stepping stone for many people to think about tech and entrepreneurship more broadly.
0: Yeah, I mean, it it accomplished so much at so many levels. Obviously, it provided capital to founders that were looking to build something. It, uh, Like you said, it it kind of created this alternative path for the student investors to maybe think about a career in venture. Or I've I've seen a lot of them go on to high-growth startups and very interesting positions coming out of the gates. But what it also did was it also kind of, for Boston specifically, almost united the student population. Because I, I, I'll never forget, I went to the Mass Technology Leadership Council on conference. And this was probably you know around that time, the 2012, 2013 era. And I saw all these students. And I think the little breakout session was specifically, um, you know, how do we engage more of the student population in Boston? All these students come here and they leave type of topic, which is pretty common in Boston. And uh, I go there and there was a bunch of students there. And I noticed, you know, they're from Tufts, Northeastern, Harvard, MIT, and et cetera, et cetera. And they were all talking to each other. I'm like, how do you guys all know each other, right? And they're like, oh, well, we're entrepreneurial types and we kind of found each other. And then I think it was like the following Monday, a press release was issued where they were all the investment partners where I was just like, this needed to happen. And it just, I think it paid off and has continued since then.
1: Yeah, and like Denali, Natalie, Peter, like have scaled it up tremendously. I mean, I go back to some of the events. I'm just blown away. The talent was always there. The kind of appetite to learn has only grown over time. Uh, but um, you know, I'm I'm just like super thankful that GC even gave me the opportunity to try and start a program like this, and uh, like the folks who end up, you know, really scaling up, like uh, Peter Denali and Natalie, have done just such an amazing job.
0: Yeah, no, they've done a phenomenal job, all three of them. All right, so what you're up to now? B two B twelve. So you, you started another company. So so why did you decide to leave venture and then start another company? And what are the details on what you're up to next?
1: Yeah, so um, I started B twelve. Um, almost four years ago, um, for me, all like journeys start with people. And so, um, you know, I always, I had the bug, like I, I loved venture, I, There was a chance I was going to just like go at it, you know, and be a career VC. But I told myself, if I found the right person, the right space, I'd try and start a company again. And uh, for me, I had like kind of a list of a few folks who I thought would be really co- good compliments to me. Um, you know, I was looking for someone deeply technical, someone who had the same set of values, uh, someone who's like best at what they do. Um, and at the top of my list was um, someone named Adam Marcus, who's my co-founder here. Um, Adam and I actually went to middle and high school together. We worked at Google together. Um, we ran into the street in Cambridge together when he's getting his PhD at a and MIT. And then I invested in a company called Loku where he was on the founding team. Um, Adam and I have a lot of similar values, partially from you know, growing up in the same city, but also like just, we have a lot of similar things that we care about. And But we're like very complementary. Like my background is more Uh, around like the business side, scaling companies, uh, and his background is like deep technology expertise. And both of us saw this overlapping problem coming in the world around automation and work. um, And we're both really passionate about it. I I saw it in a couple of different ways. Um, When I was at General Catalyst, I invested in a lot of SaaS companies or B2B software companies. And one of the things I noticed in a lot of these companies is like this common trend where, you know, companies would start off with this notion that they wanted to build great DIY tools. This was like kind of like the mantra in like the, you know, 2000 to 2010 era, like let's build software so easy that people can do it themselves. And it was really amazing because they took these things that might've cost like millions of dollars in services and gave you tools where you could do it on your own. Uh, but there's this dirty little secret around all of these companies, which is they would start off by saying, let's make it super easy and let people do it on their own. And they realized their customers needed a little bit of help. Uh, so they would figure out, you know, how much support can we offer? They would often create these partners, like partner programs or agencies would get them onboarded. Um, so the like the reality was a lot of folks, like they love the tools, but they were looking for a little bit more of a solution. Um, and the the kind of the organization and technology that enabled someone to kind of not just enable you to do it yourself, but let you do it for you was kind of a little bit of a mess. Like it was this afterthought around a lot of this software. Um, so it felt like there was an opportunity to kind of like think about the future of work in that world. I had done stuff around SaaS software and marketplaces. Those two things are often thought about dis- as disparate things. How do you build a SaaS tool or how do you build a marketplace? I thought if you squeeze the two together, you could probably build a better solution for customers. And then the second thing we saw is, you know Adam's research at Loku was at the intersection or at MIT was at the intersection of crowdsourcing and machine learning. And so it was like a computer scientist thinking about the same exact set of problems. How do you organize people really efficiently to do work? And his career has been around moving from his PhD, where he did like basic image classification, is there a dog in this foot or not, to Loku, where he did like more complex data structuring, I'm gonna use a crowd of people and some algorithms to um, structure menu data around the world, um, to where we are at B12, which is how do you use those same kind of like strategies to organize people and machines, but enable them to do creative team-based knowledge work, which is the type of work we're interested in facilitating through automation here at B12.
0: Now the, the, you have a AI engine that's kind of, it's called orchestra. So, so, so what are the details on that? Like what, what does it orchestra do?
1: Yeah. So orchestra is a workflow management system. The, the big kind of opportunity and mission around B12 is thinking about how do you build a brighter future of work while still embracing the automation that's coming? Uh, and we think those two things are very much um, complementary. Like uh, I was in my first self-driving car in 2009. If you'd asked me in 2009, What will 2019 look like? I would have told you, absolutely, there are going to be no human drivers. You know, everything's going to be fully automated. The reality is that, like, it's super exciting to think about that end state on any type of work or any type of automation, but just takes a long time. You talk to the most competent technologists out there, like, things like general artificial intelligence, the ability to do all tasks. There's, like, no line of sight or path to do that in the near term. And so we think this human machine-based workflow system is, like, a much better approach. So Orchestra has a workflow management system that really facilitates it. But, and so, you know, you could think about something like Uber as a workflow management system. It tells a driver, take a passenger from point A and drop them off at point B. Orcas is different in two ways, like from something like Uber. The first is, it's oriented around, the, around team-based knowledge work. So there's some research done at Stanford by folks in our team around these things called flash teams, which is how do you organize not just an individual driver to do work, for example, but an entire team of people to do work, which requires you to figure out different types of expertise for folks inside a workflow system. How do you facilitate handoffs? How do you project manage? It's a different set of problems, but it unlocks uh, incredibly different types of work. The second way that orchestra is different is it says that um, that type of work can be done either by a human or a piece of software. So if you go back to the Uber analogy, Uber has on one end of the spectrum, its current product, which is human drivers driving people around um, all around the world. And then they have this like totally orthogonal lab where they're building a self-driving car and they think at some point those two things will intersect. Um, At B12, we say you can build automation right from day one. So since we break up work into smaller bits and pieces, we can automate certain things super easily right now. And as there are more advances in AI or algorithms, we can automate other parts of work as well. But the benefit is that you don't need to wait for some breakthrough or some like fully autonomous Uh, AI in order to start building automation and removing some of the more rote and mechanical work that people do day to day. Uh, And so something like orchestra facilitates this team-based work and hopefully gives experts superpowers so they can focus on the more creative and analytical work day to day. Uh, And we can automate some of the more rote and mechanical things and offer a great service to our customers.
0: And like orchestra is a platform that can be used for many, many use cases. But so what, what are you focused on right now as far as your business?
1: Yeah. So, um, we, um, we were really interested in thinking about how do you take a technology like orchestra and build an end to end solution around it? Um, we weren't as interested in kind of like saying, Hey, let's like sell this as a workflow management system. Cause in order to unlock a lot of the value of these workflows, you have to really understand every aspect of how work is actually happening. And we felt like we were best suited to do that on our own. And so, um, we started off the company focused, ex- uh, like exclusively on web design. So we would help businesses build, manage, and optimize their web presence. Uh, When I was at GC, I was on the board of Big Commerce. I looked at a lot of other web presence companies and it was this great example of a place where the tools are so easy, you should be able to do it on your own. But if you looked at most customers, they weren't getting to points of great success, just doing it on their own. And websites are kind of complicated things. You need to be kind of technical. You need some design sense. You need some copywriting capabilities. You need graphic design capabilities. So having a team of people is beneficial. Um, and um, you know, as, as simple as software might make it, having that expertise, the ability to like know how to market and everything else like that could be really beneficial. So uh, with B12, we'll, um, we started off exclusively on websites and we've grown over time to think about how do we create this do it for you model for like front office tasks or tasks that help you grow your business specifically online. So we now do websites, SEO, blogging, email marketing, all powered by orchestra. So we'll do it for you. Um, while still kind of having the benefits of software that is easy to use and end user could do it if they want, like we give them access where you could edit a website on your own. Uh, but the added benefit we have this like kind of smart AI enabled marketplace on top of it, uh, where anytime you need help, it's just a click away and we'll do it for you.
0: And what like, so I, I went through the process of building out a website and it was, so simple (laughs) like and i mean that's the point right uh where i just felt like you know you just had to put in some data points and automatically it started creating this website for you that was very current looking so the whole process of building it was you know a matter of minutes of what your platform was building which was just amazing
1: yeah i mean i if you look at kind of the way a lot of the platforms SaaS platforms that you see that scale now if you remember they they were started over a decade ago and so the world of technology was just so different then. And one of the things that we benefit from some of our friends who are starting kind of analogous companies benefit from is the world is just really different today. And so what you're talking about specifically, you know, uh, if you, if you try a lot of traditional website editors as just one faster of our product, you kind of had this choice when you were starting off with a website, you could either go find an agency. It would be a very manual process to get a website live costs a lot of money, or you start off with like a website template in one of these DIY tools and you might fall in love with the Harvard square template for a university, but you're actually a coffee shop. So now you need to make that template work for you. The world of software has changed. So with B 12. What happens is you answer a few questions. We find out information about you and businesses like you on the web, and we instantly build a draft of your website that's like specific to your business. And then we say, if you want to give us feedback on, on that website, anytime we'll pull together experts who can work way more efficiently than any freelancer might to get your website from an AI draft to a fully launched website, uh, while still giving you the tools that you might need to make edits on your own anytime you want.
0: And what's the current scale and size of, of your company as far as uh, employees and what are your what are your growth plans ahead?
1: Yeah, so we're um, just over 50 people. Um, we uh, are based here in New York, about 25% of the company is distributed, um, the rest here in the city. Uh, we've had over 100,000 businesses sign up for B12, uh, grown a lot in the last year over five X. Um, so we spent the first two to three years like focused fully on building a product, uh, investing in processes and workflow in the last year, to year and a half has been really focused on go to market and scaling. Uh, and, you know, hopefully we'll have the opportunity to keep on doing that for, for many years to come.
0: And you know, you've had the experience of building companies then seeing lots of companies being built as an investor. So, so what was it like this time around, you know, having that lens that you already had gone through and seeing kind of, Things happen multiple times of uh, founders, whether if they were at the highs or lows. Like, like what did you, What were those learnings that you applied to what you're doing now with B12?
1: Yeah, I'd say being an investor equips you in kind of a really odd way to be a founder. I'd done some founder-oriented things before about, say, they're at a totally different scale. You know, I worked in it for a year or two and uh, you know, for a couple of projects, never even raised outside funding. So it was me and like a ragtag team working on things. Uh, and you know, part of me going into this like full blast, we, on a PowerPoint deck raised 12 and a half million bucks. Like, you know, we said, we're going to really go for it is because going back to this idea that you really give a part of your soul every time you start a company. And I felt like I was ready to start a scalable and substantive company as an investor. I felt like the things I knew really well, I had a really great network. You know, uh, I knew a ton of executives, knew a ton of founders. So like, you know, with a single email, I could get contacts or, um, understand from another company, how they do things. That's a pretty good pattern recognition. Like I had a unique ability for a few years to just like learn what was happening in the world. For me, there was like a super steep learning curve on the operational parts of starting a company. You know, I knew what perfect looked like. I knew all the metrics you wanted to hit. I knew what OKRs were. Like I knew all of these things. When you're starting a company, those things like only so much, only matter so much, what you're trying to do is like establish product market fit. And that's not a science, it's an art. Um, You have to manage and work with people and mentor, notably, you very rarely have to manage large groups of people because investment teams or partnerships and they're pretty small. So for me, a lot of the learning in the first year or two is really understanding how to become an excellent operator. Um, And hopefully that's where I've grown the most over the last couple of years and where I've been able to benefit early on and where I still benefit is from the fact that, you know, I've met thousands of founders over the years. Hopefully, you know, when I spoke to them, I tried to add value and be gracious wherever I could. Um, So I'm able to kind of connect us in a pretty fast way to a lot of different folks uh, pretty quickly.
0: And how will you ultimately define success for B12?
1: Yes, our mission is all around kind of embracing automation and, um, you know, using that to build a brighter future of work. Um, I would love to see us continue to grow and scale. and, And for me, it's, you know, really demonstrating this work model where automation is a big part of it. But at the same time, you see extremely happy workers being able to l- deliver a great product and service, uh, and so for as long as I feel like there's a great opportunity to do that, I feel like well, we're on our path to success.
0: Now you've remained as an investor, like, except as an angel. Uh, so, what um, like what do you typically look for in terms of the angel investments that you've made? Because you've made a considerable amount of investments, um, you know, as an angel investor. So, what do you generally look for when you when you actually write a check?
1: Yeah, so for me, angel investing just fell out a little bit naturally from some of my VC days. I, um, you yeah, know, I was definitely one of these investors where I, I felt like a big part of my job, and part of this is how I was trained by folks like Brad Hoover and other folks, um, was to always meet founders. So, like, you know, I was always spending a ton of time meeting folks, um, listening to pitches, you know, trying to give constructive feedback. Uh, and if you do that for enough years, uh, it doesn't just stop because you stop being an investor uh, full time at a venture firm. Uh, founders would still come to me, ask for advice. They would want they would want some thoughts on starting and scaling companies, some thoughts on uh, raising money. They'd want introductions to investors. Um, and you know, one of the things I benefited a ton from my B twelve is when I when I was first thinking about starting a company. I remember going to like a few friends who were starting companies. and I told them, "Hey, I'm thinking about starting something." All of them, on the spot, without hearing a pitch, were like, "We're going to invest." Uh, and so that was such a meaningful kind of push for me to go out and start a company. And so, a big reason that I angel invest, um, other than it's probably the asset class where I could be the best, uh, drive the best financial returns given my experience, is I just want to be, you know, pay it forward. So, 90% of my investments are folks that I know or have known over a little while. I do a small number around people I meet more opportunistically or things that are adjacent to spaces that I know well. But the majority of people are founders I've known. I'm just lucky to have known a lot of founders over the years and uh, been able to invest in a bunch of them, um, you know, since starting B12.
0: Now for someone that doesn't have the experience as a, you know, institutional venture capitalist and your job was to meet founders all day long. Like if someone does want to get into angel investing, like what advice would you give someone on building up their network and starting to build up a a pipeline of, of potential investments?
1: Yeah. So I'd say the big thing that folks maybe don't understand about angel investing is never be afraid to start too small. You'd be surprised by how many like famous angels or people that, you know, super high net worth might be writing a check that's only a few thousand dollars into a company. Um, you know, it's still, you know, a huge amount of money and everything else, but I think sometimes- but, people-
0: but how, but how, So how would you do, like, should you go through AngelList to do that type of $2,000 deals or is that something that people actually, you know, writing a check to the founder of $2,000?
1: Yeah, so what I would say is I would, um, I would think of a diversified strategy. So I wouldn't, if your goal is, you know, you've saved a little bit of money, I would not invest all of that money into a single company. Instead of trying to find like what are the best opportunities you have around you, um, you know, split up whatever capital you have and just diversify it around a few investments and sit and learn. And so, um, you know, like AngelList is a place where the bar is super low. Um, You might have a, I think about like a a good strategy when you start is who are the smartest people you know. Just put a little bit of money behind them. If they're the smartest people you know, chances are they're going to outperform relative to other opportunities you might have. There are also amazing programs that exist out there. Like I did angel track from first Round capital, which is all around like nurturing uh, founders to be angel investors or spearhead started by Jeff uh, and Naval. Um, so I feel like there's more and more content out there, but um, I would just say like, you know, if you come across an opportunity and you're lucky to have a little bit of like wealth that you could invest inside a company, like don't be afraid to start to, to start small. Don't be afraid to write a check. Hopefully you'll have, you're saving enough where you can write a handful of checks and like see what happens um, and even if you've never invested before, there are just so many benefits to angel investing other than supporting people you might know and believe in. you learn a ton, you, see, you, you start to build that pattern recognition yourself. As an angel, I've actually made, I make more investments per year than I made at GC, but I still get all of the investor updates. I still have access to all of those founders. So it has its own virtuous set of uh, like cycle as a founder where um, I'm able to just see how others are operating, see what's working for folks, share lessons that I'm getting myself. Uh, and I just think there are a ton of benefits for doing so.
0: And then, what's the expectation as an angel investor moving forward as the company continues to raise additional rounds? They're, you know, like raising their A, their B round. Like, is it like most angels just kind of write that first check into that angel investment, and then when the company raises their A round, they're not writing another check? Or is that something that they should be doing? Or what? Like, what's common practice as additional rounds are raised? Yeah,
1: I mean. As a, as, an, as a full-time operator, as an angel, like, you know, I have to be cautious of my time. That's like the biggest risk for me is that I get pulled into too many different angel investing activities and I don't spend time on beach volleyball I mean like my actual commitment to a ton of folks. There are a whole bunch of different strategies around angel investing. I would say the folks who are like the best angel investors, the so people who are like making the most money doing it, um, like Elad Gill, Lee Linden, I know a bunch of folks who, literally will make more than like fund managers are uh, angel investing. They have a very aggressive strategy around double downing, like doubling down on your investment. So the basic idea is, you know, let's say you were lucky enough to be the first investor in Facebook as an angel. If you've caught fire, you have unique access to that deal as a founder, uh, as an angel investor. So you should do everything humanly possible to double down in those investments. So I've done a few dozen investments. There's certainly some companies that are on fire in my portfolio. And if I was a full-time angel investor and just doing it to maximize profits, I think the right strategy would be to say, how do I find access to capital through family offices, through friends or others and take huge chunks of these series A or series B. So it's not even around like following your prorata, which might make sense just on an individual investor basis. But if you really view the fact that every single angel investment is an opportunity that you could put a lot more money into, there's a whole set of strategies that folks follow that I think are, are really smart if you have a ton of time on your hands. So like double down, triple down on like the best companies that you have invested in because you've seen, you know, hopefully a year plus of data on how well that company is doing and will do going forward.
0: Now the pro rata that is like maintaining the equity ownership into the company. So yeah. is is that advised to keep up with your pro rata per round, assuming it, you financially can?
1: It, yeah, it depends on your financial situation. I'd say most to be, I think in most rounds, angels don't have a ton of pro rata rights. Because uh, you're usually running a small check. Um, usually you have to be a material investor to actually be able to get parada. In some cases you do. Uh, a lot of angels ask for it. In our particular round, none of our angels asked for it. And it wasn't like a threshold most angels hit. Usually if you have a relationship with the founder, they'll let you do it. I've done it sometimes. Uh, but the checks can go up pretty fast, right? You know, if you have a company invested when they're worth, you know, five or 10 million bucks and all of a sudden they're worth hundreds of millions of dollars, your parata might be pretty meaningful. Mm-hmm. So I just try and make sure you have conviction around those things. And you're just thinking about like your overall asset class allocation. I'm like, for me personally, I'm so long tech in everything I do that, you know, I'm disproportionately skewed towards tech as an asset class. It also feels like where I could drive with the best returns personally. Uh, but I think if you, um, if you're lucky enough to get access to good deals, you should be thinking really seriously about Pirata, to be really thinking about really seriously about going above and beyond your Parata to take advantage of the fact that you caught fire because when those things happen in this industry, um, there's a ton of money to be made, there's a ton of learning to, uh, to happen, you should take advantage of it.
0: Now you've seen many, 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 many uh, pitches from, from entrepreneurs. So what are the common pitch mistakes that you've seen entrepreneurs make when trying to raise capital?
1: Yeah, I feel like the biggest mistake or biggest orientation that folks need to have is they're thinking about kind of large in the scale from the scale of like a personal vantage point versus large and the from the vantage point of a venture firm or just the broader industry. It's like a very common mistake. You see student founders making a rough draft. You know, they're, they're like nervous to ask for $25,000, uh, but you have to realize like the best and biggest companies in the world, companies like Uber raise billions of dollars. And like, once you come over that hump and realize, you know, to build something really substantive, it takes capital. That's not a bad thing. It's a vehicle to build value. Um, It's a fundamentally different way to pitch. And an example of that is I remember when we did the investment uh, in Stripe um, at the Series A, they were, I think they raised something like close to $20 million pre uh, product being in market. And I think just like having that confidence to know we're going to build something amazing. We're all in to do it. Um, and the opportunity is big here. In and of itself, is so like, um, like tantalizing to VCs and to uh, partners and to prospective employees. And thinking in that type of big way is just—it's just not a natural way to think. And so that to, that shift in orientation is like one of the biggest things you could do from to turn a pitch from like a small idea into something way bigger. Yeah.
0: Now, so you, you know, as a VC, you're giving advice to founders as your own, you know being a founder yourself now. So who do you count on for advice?
1: Yeah, so my mentor at GC and to this day is, is probably Larry Bond. So he, um, uh, he's our board member. He's a person who kind of taught me how a venture works. He's an amazing, amazing investor. He often flies under the radar, uh, but he's the first investor in HubSpot, Demandware. Um, he's been like legendary in the world of SaaS. And I also just think he's one of those people. He's run a couple of public companies before. He's been in the tech world for a long time. Uh, but he's just a great coach to founders, you know, like, I think he understands the difference between, you know, giving advice that's helpful versus giving advice that you might want to hear yourself. So having sat with him uh, on investment meetings and board meetings, and now as an entrepreneur with him on my board, he just given me a ton of great advice on how to grow and scale business.
0: Well, I think that's always been a, a great thing about General Catalyst. The, the partners, you know, that started the firm, they all just all flew under the radar, like, you know, Joel Cutler, you never saw him like all over the map as this, you know, celebrity VC making deals and starting, you know, companies like ITA Software and Kayak or investing in those companies, I should say. So it's- Yeah, uh,
1: that that crew is amazing. I mean, Joel also, I was lucky to be on the board of Handy with him. Such an amazing board member. David Fialco, the firm is like one of the best people winning deals, you know, just he's he's really, really persuasive. So uh, those folks taught me a ton about like just the world of business, the world of the world adventure, so um, I owe them. I owe them a lot.
0: So, what do you do like to do outside of work when you have time?
1: <laughs> yeah, so I just got engaged, so right now most of my free ah, time is uh, filled in with uh, with wedding planning and kind of kind of keep all of that under control. Um, Meditate. I uh, play tennis and squash, but you know, I I think I heard this from on a podcast from Phil Gurley recently, which is like I, I'm one of these people. Like you see tourists in the world of startups. There's a ton today. You know, whether startups are hot or not, it's just like something I fell in love with way back when. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like I genuinely love working on B12. I genuinely love coaching founders. And so, uh, you know, as twisted as it might sound, like those are things I would do, even if they were just leisurely activities. It's just something I uh, I really enjoy doing.
0: I couldn't agree more. A thousand percent, same way, where it's just like, I, I love what I do with Venture Fiz And did I spend, you know, five, six, probably seven hours yesterday on a Sunday working on Venture Fiz stuff? I did. And I loved it. Yeah, totally. Well, Natasha, thanks so much for taking the time to share all about your background, uh, your experience as an investor, all the great advice for other entrepreneurs trying to do amazing things. And of course, what you're up to with B12. Yeah, thanks so
1: much for having
0: me. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.